If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to the Gospel of Matthew. We will be in chapter 25, and we'll be reading the parable of the talents, which is verses 14 through 30. The text is also printed for you in your bulletin. Matthew 25, beginning at verse 14. Let us give our careful attention to the reading of God's word. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them, and he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you've delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But the master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scatter no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given. And he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This has been the reading of God's word. Please be seated. For all of the ways that Jesus is in popular thought considered to be a great moral teacher, an example of enlightened and elevated humanity, there is no one in our Bibles who speaks of judgment more than Jesus. And there is no one who speaks about judgment in a way that I think is more terrifying than Jesus. What did we just read? Jesus tells us that the servant who failed his master wasn't demoted. He wasn't fired. He wasn't just kicked out of the house. He wasn't sent into exile. He was cast out into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. He was sent to hell. Yikes. I remember as a kid listening to the Christian radio station driving around town in San Diego. That was K-Wave. And the station identification was always promising, uh, uh, is always promising an encouraging and uplifting radio. That is not the parable of the talents. It's a word of judgment. It's likely that you are as comfortable hearing about judgment as I am speaking about it, which is to say I'm not very comfortable speaking about it. But we need these words. 
And I know you've heard me say this before, but, but I, man, do I think it's true. The ironic thing about our aversion to judgment, right? Nobody wants to sit and talk about God being a God of judgment. The ironic thing about all of that is that we live in a world that is constantly judging. Nothing is more characteristic of our society, both religious and non-religious, than pointing our fingers and saying, guilty. We've turned everything into a source of righteousness, And the ironic thing is that as quick and as easily as we judge, we get so uncomfortable with the idea of a God of judgment. When God, who is perfectly good and just and righteous, judges, we become incredulous and offended. And yet God's judgment is in reality what this world and all of its sin and all of its wickedness and all of its brokenness, that's what it needs. And God's judgment always directs us to our need of his grace. We need to hear this word because Jesus is offering these words to us as a serious warning so that we will respond rightly to him. We also need this word of judgment because it's for us. It's for you and I. It's for church-going people. Matthew 24 and 25 isn't doing what maybe comes to mind when we think of judgment and God's judgment and Jesus talking about judgment. He's not separating the good people who are in the church from the heathen who are out there who are evil and wicked. It's quite the opposite. He's depicting a judgment that starts inside the church with those who claim to follow him, which means this is a word for us. Last week we looked at the parable of the ten virgins or the the ten bridesmaids, and that's often called the twin parable of this one. These are for religious people, right? And so Jesus is answering the question for church-going folks, what does faithfulness look like as I'm waiting? What does faithfulness look like as I'm in the delay, waiting for Jesus to return again? By extension, what does faithfulness look like knowing that tomorrow isn't guaranteed? What does faithfulness look like? In the parable of the ten bridesmaids, Jesus shows us that readiness looks like waiting that is prepared. In today's passage, the parable of the talents, faithfulness is is waiting that is faithful. J.C. Ryle said this, he said, The ten virgins is a parable of vigilance. The parable of the talents is a parable of diligence. The story of the virgins calls us to watch the talents. They call on us to work. And so Jesus teaches us what it means to faithfully wait by telling us a story. And I want to honor that this morning. I want to go through the story. Let's listen to Jesus, the storyteller. And so first of all, we'll we'll work through the story, and then we'll sit with what the story leaves us with, which is the warning. We need to heed the warning, and then we need to go find the grace that empowers us to live according to that warning. Because the last thing I think Jesus is ever doing with these warnings is throwing us back on ourselves. He's always causing us to look back to him. All right, so first of all, the story. The story of the parable, the message of this parable, I think are pretty straightforward. It's pretty easy. We have an extraordinarily wealthy man who is preparing to go off on a long journey. And as he's preparing to go, he gathers some of his servants and he entrusts his property to them. He calls them to manage his money. You might call these servants in-house investment bankers because that's the role that they're, they're playing. In verse 15, he assesses the abilities of his servants and he divides the wealth accordingly. Uh, They don't all get the same amount, right? But instead he looks at their abilities, their ableness to do what he's calling them to do. And then he gives them these responsibilities. One servant gets five talents. One servant gets two talents. One servant gets one talent. And here's the thing, and this is the main message of this parable. This is a ton of money. It's called the parable of the talents, which I think is really confusing for English speakers. 
So often you'll hear, like, how are you using the skills and abilities that God has given you? You need to go out there and use those skills. And listen, maybe that's an application like, like five degrees down the road. That's not at all what's being said here. A talent was a large measurement of money. 20 years wages. The servants are given incredible financial power, and that's the point. And so it would be helpful to put uh, into our modern minds, right, let's make a talent a dollar amount. What does that, what does that mean? And so a talent is 6,000 denarii. A denarius was a day's wage. The average income in California is about $32,000. If you break that down hourly and then by the day, and I've done the math for us, so it's probably not right if you know my math skills. But it means this. One talent is about $800,000. Two talents, $1.5 million. Five talents, $4 million. Now we can round up to make it the same amount numerically. Five million, two million, one million dollars. That's the parable of the talents. So what's the point? It's a lot of money he's entrusting to them. Some translations probably better say it's the parable of bags of gold. Everyone says like these bags of gold they need to go spend. Let me give you the best um, new title for this parable I could come up with, which it is the parable of the venture capitalists. You ever seen Shark Tank? Show Shark Tank, right? Someone with a product or service, they need some capital. They need some investors to get the company off the ground. And so they come before this panel of rich venture capitalists. And they try to convince them to, to give them money in exchange for a percentage of the company. That's this parable. The master is telling the servants, go make me some money. So the master goes away on his long journey. In verse 16, the first two servants, they immediately get to work. They immediately go away. They start making deals. They start doing business. At once they go, they do what they were expected to do, and they get these incredible returns on investments. The third servant, though, takes his $1 million. He digs a hole, and he buries his money. It's not crazy. It's a security deposit box in the ancient world. Make sure no one's looking. Draw yourself a map and go bury your treasure. The problem is that he wasn't told to just keep his money safe. Verse 19, the master returns. And it's been a while. We're in the delay. The master returns, though. He comes back and, 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 he, and he says, uh, I need to settle my accounts with my servants. So the first two, they come and they report their dealings. They have doubled their master's investment. The master praises them. He invites them to enter into his celebration, to enter into his joy over what they have accomplished. And then in verse 24, it's a different story. This servant has buried the money. And he comes forward and he excuses his inaction with the harsh assessment of the master. It's because you're a hard man. It's because you exploit your workers. That's what he says, right? You reap where you do not sow. You exploit those who work for you. So instead, I hid the $1 million. It's safe. It's fine. Here, you can have it back. What does the master do? He judges the servant by his own words, doesn't he? If I'm that terrifying, if I'm that hard, shouldn't you have done what you're supposed to do? If I'm that awful of a, of a, of a master, right, shouldn't you be fearful of me? Shouldn't you have tried to please me then? He's exposing maybe the lie, or at least partial lie, of the man's excuses. He says, you're not just afraid, you're also lazy. And it ends with the servant being punished. His money is given to the most productive servant. And that wicked servant is cast out into outer darkness. All right, take a step back. In the end, the story is pretty straightforward. Jesus is the master. Fair enough. The servants are people who call themselves followers of Jesus. 
His absence is the delay right now. Jesus has ascended to the right hand of the Father. We await the second coming where he will judge the living and the dead. That is the delay. That is the journey of the Son back to heaven. And so what is the wealth that has been entrusted to us? It's salvation. I mean, what is salvation but Jesus entrusting himself to his people? He is giving his life that we may have life. He lavishes us with grace and says, live your life out of that abundance. In John 10, in one of those great job descriptions that Jesus gives of himself, I've come to give them life that they may have it abundantly. He's investing his personal wealth, so to speak, into his people. In Christ, we are given a new identity. We are the redeemed. We have new names. We have new identities as God's children. We are yanked out of the kingdom of darkness and put into the kingdom of light of his beloved son. We are being transformed as people of God's kingdom. And we live out of that inheritance which is ours now. And so the faithful servants are those who live this life, who use what has been entrusted to them. They live out of the identities that have been given to them. They love and they serve. They are beacons of God's life and joy to a dying world. To live as the kingdom people is to live as those who have hope and expectation of one day entering into the fullness of God's joy. That's the story. Pretty simple story. Not simple or easy to sit with. Because it has some uncomfortable elements, right? The the obvious question the parable intends to force upon us, the question that Jesus wants us to chew on, is what kind of servant are you? What kind of servant are you? That question has to weigh heavy, otherwise we're not taking Jesus very serious. What kind of servant are you? Will you be one who seeks the interest of the master, uh, or, or will you make no use of what is given to you? It's a heavy parable. It's supposed to shock us. It's supposed to make us sit up straight. And so we need to sit with the warning, which is our second point. What is the warning? Jesus ends this parable with the last servant receiving judgment. And, and again, that's a hard word for us. We don't like the idea of eternal punishment. It makes us squirm. It, it should make us squirm. We may not struggle to think that there's a certain class of people, a certain kind of person, think like Hitler categories, then yeah, yeah, hell's a good thing. Uh, It makes sense for people like those, but, but what about the guy in this story? He doesn't do anything extraordinarily evil, right? He doesn't even steal the money. He didn't do anything evil with the money. In the end, it's not that he did something wrong, it's that he didn't do anything. Why would he receive such a harsh punishment? This is a person who was called a servant who is now cast into a place of of, of darkness out of the presence of the master. Why? It's because he's not a true servant. He had the title, but he didn't have the heart. He didn't serve. He didn't do what was expected of him. And it's not only that he didn't do anything, but his reasoning for not doing anything was awful (laughs) because he gives a harsh assessment. He blames the master. He does nothing with the money. He doesn't even put it in the bank to earn negligible interest. And the ironic thing is that when he's assessed at the beginning of the story, he has the least ability, right? He has the least expected of him. You can hear the master saying, you had one job. (laughs) What happened? His actions and his words reveal a heart that is hard toward his master. And that proves that he was never a true servant. 
And so he's cast out of the master's presence. Now the application is hard for us to hear because there's just no softening if we're being honest readers of Jesus. There are some who claim to be his followers who are not. There are some who say that they are Christians, but they are not. There are some who call themselves servants, and out loud they they call Jesus Master. They call him Lord, but that is not reflective of their heart at all. That is such a dangerous place to be. It's possible to call yourself a Christian. It's possible to attend church occasionally. It's possible to desire a moral and upright world. It's possible to desire a more just and equitable society and have no love for God and no interest in living a life that is fruitful in obedience to Him. Now, does this mean we're saved by what we do? Is Jesus teaching us salvation by works? Not at all. It's If you are a follower of Jesus, you will do the work he gives you. Fruit doesn't make you a disciple. Fruit is the evidence that you are one. This is a parable that reinforces that our salvation is free. But it's also that our salvation is full. God does not leave us in our sin and misery. God gets to work on our hearts. God doesn't leave us with our old allegiances and our old value systems and our old goals in life. He gives us new ones. The gospel changes everything. It has to because it's powerful. And so we work from a place of rest, not achievement. Not in order to earn. The gospel leads us to love as those who have already been infinitely loved. It leads us to serve as those who are still being served by King Jesus. It leads us to asking, like, how does my Lord want me to spend such a great salvation? And, like, for some, it it, it will mean, like, leave everything and go. For some, it will mean leave everything and get to the mission field. For some, the the answer will be, I'm going to start an orphanage or or work with an orphanage or I'm going to take in refugees because an amazing gospel does amazing things. But for so many of us, that question results in more ordinary, equally effective kingdom-building measures. Share the gospel with those that God puts in my life. Pour into my children, not just caring about their academic future, not just caring about their their social acclamation, but caring about their, are, are, are they disciples of Jesus? To encourage missionaries and be generous in contributing to kingdom building and missions. To pursue holiness and chastity and purity and lead others in that way. To wash feet. Whatever 2021 foot washing looks like, start washing feet. Grace does not eliminate effort, even while it absolutely destroys earning. The free grace of the gospel is that you could not, nor could ever earn salvation. The work is done in Jesus. You cannot cleanse yourself, but you have been cleansed, washed by the blood of the Lamb. You cannot, nor could ever offer the righteousness required to stand before a holy God. And so Jesus takes our sin, and in exchange, he clothes us with his righteousness. You can never overcome death in and of yourself, but you've been crucified with Christ. And so we can say together, and we can say with Paul, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. He has earned you a place at the kingdom at the price of his own blood. There is no earning here, but from this completed work, he's calling us to walk with him, to serve him, 
to love others with the love that he has loved us with. Think of all of the benefits that we have in salvation, all of the benefits of an identity as sons uh, and daughters of God, the identity that is secure in him. We no longer are, are prisoners to the gaze of others. We no longer have to be approved by others. Our sins are fully and finally forgiven. The message of this parable is spend it. Spend it. The world offers you nothing. Jesus offers you everything. Spend it. He's calling us to walk in the way of the reality that he is calling us to. To live out of this new identity that he has given to us. That's what this parable is about. To be what we are already in him. Take the warning seriously. Otherwise, we're not listening to Jesus. But I would suggest that we're not rightfully hearing that warning if it's exclusively a mirror only to look more and more inward. Nah, it's a window. It's a spotlight to our need of the grace that empowers faithfulness in our walks with Jesus. It's a warning that only makes sense to people who already have received his grace. The grace of Jesus is everywhere in this passage. You could even say the rejection of the servant isn't merely disobedience to God's law. That's one thing. But what's more tragic than that? It's a rejection of the master's grace. And that's what we have here. Where do we see grace? Consider the two faithful servants. What are they working with? Only what's been given to them. And then they're assessed only by their own ability. This is not a call to compete. It's not a call to compare. It's just a call to be faithful with what God has given you. To be faithful to the salvation and life that he has given you. To be faithful with what already is yours by grace. You see that it's all grace and the response given to the two servants. One comes back and he says, your five talents have produced five more. Well done. My preferred translation, bravo. Bravo, faithful servant, enter into my joy. The one with two talents, uh, he, he, he gets two more, right? Same exact commendation. Bravo, faithful servant, enter into my joy. Think about all of the, the, the good bosses you've had. Maybe you've been blessed to have some good bosses. What makes a good boss is that they look at you and they acknowledge the work that you have done. They give you credit. They, that they're in your corner. You know that they're for them. I know many of us have not had bosses like that, but they exist, I think, in the world. Many of us have had parents, and, and we, we come to a certain point in our life, and we say of those parents, I think we've all had parents, but we, we come to a point in our life where we say, like, man, my parents were really in my corner. They were for me. And part of coming to that point in life is realizing that some in this room never had parents like that. And so what a gift when you have parents who are in your corner who, who say, well done. Uh, hopefully some of us get that if we haven't got it with bosses or with parents. We get it from friends. We, we get it from others who God has placed in our life. And let me just say that all of those voices, and I think they're needed voices, they're gifts from God, those voices, all of those voices are just faint echoes. They are pale comparisons to the hope that we were created for, which is to hear the God of the universe, the creator, sustainer, Lord, our redeemer, look at you in the eye and say, bravo. Faithful servant, enter into my joy. Isn't that an amazing thing to hope for? For God to look you in the eye and not say, I guess you're here now, huh? But to look you in the eye and maybe grab you by the shoulder and say, bravo, well done. But all I had was yours. I don't care, bravo. You're mine. One returns five talents. One returns two talents. That's $3 million difference. 
God isn't concerned about how much success. It's not that you're accountable for what comes of your efforts. He simply wants you to be faithful with the gospel, to be faithful with what you've been given. Even the third servant, the master says, you didn't even put it in the bank. Doesn't that imply if that servant came back with like 1% interest, that would have been accepted? Man, you at least have to give me some interest on that money. There's a joke in my family. Every time that we, we go through Taco Bell, I said everyone judges. Some of you were judging me for going to Taco Bell. That's okay. I can handle that. The joke in my family is you ask for some hot sauce, and the expectation is make it rain. Make it rain with the hot sauce packets. But instead, sometimes they give you like two or three, and so the joke in my family is what? Is it coming out of your paycheck? Like is, is, the, is the hot sauce coming out of your paycheck? Man, our Christian lives can look like that poor Taco Bell employee sometimes. We operate out of scarcity with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control, but it's not coming out of our paychecks. We can spend it. We can spend it because we have all of it. We have all of it right now in full. The amount of money given is shocking because the generosity of the master is shocking. So to love and bear with one another, to serve others in need out of who we are in Christ, you know what that is? It's playing with house money. All of our lives in Jesus is just playing with house money. Spend it. Second place we see grace is in the master. The difference between a faithful and slothful servant really is how you view the master. Isn't that what's going on here? Two are eager to serve. One doesn't serve because he sees him as a hard man. What does that mean for us? Do we regularly stop to consider what God has done for us? Do we see God as hard and exploitative, or do we see him as gracious and good? The servant calls him a hard man, and he just entrusted his servants with $8 million. He doesn't seem to be withholding a thing. How do we view what God has done for us in Jesus? How do we view the value and the salvation that we have? Do you feel entrusted with something that is like an absolutely incredible amount of money? Take $5 million as the example. Like, what would you do for $5 million? What would it buy? What pleasure would you seek? What security would that provide for you? Um, I'd be willing to do quite a bit for $5 million. But do you believe the gospel is worth more? Do I believe the gospel is worth more? Because that's the question, and it is. Man, it is. You've missed the point of this parable if your takeaway is to, is to keep your good works ledger updated. Because the point is to fix your eyes on the God who is supplied for your every need, and he says, go and be a source of good and joy to this world in my name. We need to return again and again to the gospel because it's easy to forget it. It's easy to lose sight of the generosity of Christ, especially, and this is the whole point of Jesus here, especially in the delay. Especially while the master is on his journey. And so we go back to the gospel and we study it and we meditate upon it and we preach it to ourselves and to others and we listen to it and we return again and again to what God has done for us, what he's done for me, what he's done for you in Christ. And so my exhortation to all of us this morning, we all need to hear this word, is just stop to consider what Christ has given us and at what cost it was to him. Because the more that amazes us, the more that takes root in our hearts, the more we will be eager and so secure to respond to it and seek the joy of our master. Let's pray.
Lord, if there is one thing I ask this morning for your people, myself right there first in line, is that we would leave here knowing that we are rich. We would leave here knowing we're rich. We would leave here knowing that, that our salvation is, is not just an, uh, an addendum. It's not just something that we tack on to who we really are. But they, we are rich in who Christ is for us and what he has done for us. And that we would live out of that wealth. Out of that prosperity. Treasure that can never be taken away. Treasure that we can never lose treasure that endures. Lord, I pray that we would heed your warning uh, very seriously, that, that we would uh, turn to you. Lord, if, if, if we uh, treat you as a hard master, Lord, blow us away by the gentleness and goodness of, of Jesus, the God who has done everything at the cost of his own blood. Lord, for those who are, are wrestling with uh, whether they belong to you, I pray that you would grab hold of them. I pray that they would see your goodness and your grace. Lord, if this is to have any, any value in our lives, if we are to walk out of this place uh, transformed and shaped by this word, we need you to do that work. And so, Holy Spirit, uh, would you grab hold of your people this morning to confront us with your word, to the end of the day, bring us ever again to the cross of Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.